Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. I was particularly struck by reading those familiar words once again because I meet so many people who are struggling to get a life. And as I looked into this passage of Scripture found in John's Gospel in the 10th chapter, I had noted that this statement that Jesus made was made in the context of a, an explanation that he was the good shepherd, that he said that people were like sheep. That's hardly the most complimentary thing to say to people. Let's be honest about it. When the Bible says, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, I don't think anybody would dispute that. There is an own way tendency. There is an own way bias about us. Very often we know the right thing to do and we don't do it. Very often we know the wrong thing that we should not do and we do it. We know what God says, but we go our own way. Now, if we're going to get a life, we've got to come to terms with ourselves. We've got to identify the sheepishness dimension and begin to discover what it is to relate to the good shepherd who comes to seek and to save the first half of this verse, John 10, 10, says this, The thief comes but to steal and to kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. So on the one hand, we recognize that we need to identify with Christ as the one who gives life as the good shepherd to the sheep. But on the other hand, we need to recognize that there is a thief. There is an enemy of our souls who is committed to stealing and killing and destroying. Failure to recognize the enemy puts us in dire danger. A number of years ago, I saw a television talk show on which Dick Cavett was interviewing Lord Macmillan, the former Prime Minister of Great Britain. During the course of the discussion that they had, Cavett asked Macmillan, what is the difference, sir, between a politician and a statesman? Without hesitation, Macmillan answered, a politician is acting in the present and is doing what is possible. A statesman has a sense of history. So Cabot then said, can you give me an example? And he said, yes. In 1941, the British Eighth Army under Field Marshal Sir Bernard Montgomery gained its first victory over the Nazi powers at the Battle of El Alamein in North Africa. At the same time, the United States of America came into the Second World War. President Roosevelt flew out to Cairo to meet with Winston Churchill. Macmillan was there as one of Churchill's aides. They all had dinner together, but Churchill was not in a particularly talkative mood. He excused himself as soon as the meal was over, they went back to the villa, and because the big man didn't want to go to bed, Macmillan said, we, the young aides, couldn't go to bed either. So we sat in a corner talking quietly, while Churchill glowered on his own in a corner. After about an hour, Churchill looked up and said, to everybody's surprise, Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo because he overestimated the Prussians and underestimated the British.
That's why he met his defeat. He then lapsed into silence. And then a few minutes later, looked up and said, the Nazis are defeated. That was in 1941. The war ended in 45. The Nazis are defeated. Stalin and the Soviets are the enemy. If we overestimate the Nazis and underestimate the Marxists, we are in deep trouble. If anybody had heeded the words of that statesman, the history of Europe would have been totally different. But he was not heeded. People didn't recognize the enemy. They underestimated one, and they overestimated the other, and tragedy was the result. Recognize the enemy. It is one thing to see that Christ came that we might have life. It is an entirely different thing to see that the enemy of our souls is committed to killing and stealing and destroying. With that in mind, there are three things I want to identify for us today. I want to talk about the enemy's identity. I want to talk about the enemy's strategy. And then we'll finish on an up note by reminding ourselves of the enemy's vulnerability. The enemy of our souls, of whom Jesus spoke, of whom the Bible has much to say, is identified with a number of different names. He is called the accuser. That is the literal meaning of the word devil, which in the Greek is diabolos. Peter said this in his first epistle, chapter 5. Your enemy, the devil, goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I was on safari with a couple of my friends out in Botswana. As we moved through lion territory we came across the spoor, the tracks of a lion. We could see that he had been following a buffalo. We tracked the lion and the buffalo, and eventually we noticed that the tracks of the lion suddenly stopped. And at the very point where the tracks of the lion stopped, the tracks of the buffalo were much deeper in the sand. The experienced trackers pointed out to me that up till that point, The lion had been tracking the buffalo, but then had caught it and had pounced on its back, dug its claws into the Cape Buffalo's muscle back, and with its mighty jaws had grabbed the jugular. And they said, we'll find the carcass within a few yards. And sure enough, there it was. The Cape Buffalo killed by the lion. Your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion is waiting to pounce on every situation. He does not initiate situations. He tracks them down, and he waits for them, and he pounces on them, and he gets you by the jugular, and he makes a bad situation a thousand times worse. Recognize the enemy. The Lord Jesus told a parable about the kingdom. He said that the kingdom of God is rather like a farmer going out to sow a seed in a field. And after he has sown the seed in the field and the crops begin to grow, someone else comes along and sows weed among the seed. 
and the two grow up together. When the farmer realizes what has been done, he looks at it and he says, an enemy did this. Every time you see the activity of the evil one pouncing on a situation and making it a thousand times worse and dragging people down into emotional, spiritual, relational destruction. You point at it and you say, an enemy did this. If you don't recognize the enemy, that's the sure way to defeat. The second name for the evil one is Satan. That means the adversary, the malignant enemy of God, who is utterly, incontrovertibly opposed to divine rule, who is utterly committed to resisting all God's purposes. You remember a strange experience that Peter had on one occasion? Jesus had just explained that he was going to go up to Jerusalem, that there he would be rejected by the hierarchy, that he would be abused, that he would be crucified, but on the third day he would rise again from the dead. And Peter intervened and said, absolutely, emphatically, no. To which Jesus retorted, out of my sight, Satan. That wasn't Satan. It was Peter. It was well-meaning Peter. It was Peter who loved Jesus. It was Peter who couldn't bear to think of Jesus going through all this. It was Peter who had higher and nobler and grander plans for Jesus. But Jesus says, out of my way, Satan. Why? Was he overreacting? No, because you see, whenever there is interposed in the purposes of God that which would hinder his purposes— That's the work of an enemy. And we look at it, and we say, an enemy has done that. Can you think of any situations in the lives of your friends or your families, or perhaps even in your own life, where you have known that God was working out his purposes, but all kinds of roadblocks, all kinds of hindrances came in the way? Did you know what was going on? Did you say, an enemy? has done that. He is called the father of lies. The father of lies. We had a game of Monopoly with a number of our grandchildren. Monopoly played with a number of grandchildren is an experience. It could be called life to the full, or it could be called something else certain conflicts arose as they were busy building hotels and and houses and getting sent to jail and all kinds of other things. And during the course of one minor discussion, let's put it that way, one person accused one of my grandsons of lying. Whereupon Papa Stu had to delve into his vast experience and explain that he was not lying, he was just mistaken. There is a difference. You can communicate information that is incorrect without lying. What is the difference between communicating information that is incorrect and lying? That's easy. Lying is the communication of incorrect information, listen, with intent to deceive. With intent to deceive. And the devil is a liar 
from the beginning. He is the enemy of truth. He cannot stand reality because truth and reality lead to order and goodness. He is into the confusion business. One of the strange things about our culture at the present time is that people are less interested in reality, in truth. In fact, many would say there is no such thing as truth, and yet at the same time, they spend vast amounts of money getting into virtual reality. If ever there was an oxymoron, virtual reality must be it. People are afraid of reality. They're afraid of truth, and the devil, like a roaring lion, will pounce on their fear of reality and truth and bring them into utter confusion. Do you know anybody who's confused about right and wrong? Do you know anybody who's confused about good and evil? Can you think of anybody who's in a situation where they've maybe even gone so far as to say, well, if it's right for you, it's right, but if it's wrong for me, it's wrong, and if it feels good, it must be good. Utter, total confusion. Have you ever seen that? Have you heard it? Did you put your finger on it and say, an enemy has done this? He is also called the prince of this world, or the god of this age. God is the sovereign of our universe, but he installed humanity as his regents, as his agents. And humanity decided to hand over what was rightfully their domain to the evil one. And so there's a very real sense how under the umbrella of divine sovereignty, the evil one is the prince of this world. He wields power in innumerable structures. He does it in education. He does it in entertainment. He does it in politics. He does it in business. Do you have to think hard to think of examples? Is there any confusion? Is there any error in education? Is there anything that is fundamentally and intrinsically wrong in politics? Would it be true to say that there are gross injustices in business? An enemy has done this. Not only does he operate in secular institutions, he insinuates himself into spiritual structures too. So that it is not uncommon to find in the name of religion, hatred and division and bitterness and even war and murder and assassination. An enemy has done this. The incredible thing is that many, many people looking for life, don't even recognize the enemy. He is called the evil one. Deliver us from evil, or deliver us from the evil one, is part of the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. That which is evil is opposed to all that is intrinsically good. That which is evil is committed to the perverting of all that is innately beautiful. What could be more intrinsically good 
than love and commitment. What could be more intrinsically good than marriage and family? I read that in American society, we have now arrived at the position where you are more likely to be divorced than widowed. An enemy has done this. It would be true to say that we are losing sight of what is good. We're losing sight of what is beautiful. The one who is opposed to all that is intrinsically good and perverts all that is innately beautiful must be recognized for who he is. The enemy of all that is good and right and true. And if you don't recognize the enemy, there's a pretty good chance you'll find yourself in deep trouble. The enemy's strategy. John chapter 10 follows immediately after John chapter 9. That may in and of itself be one of the more profound things that I'll share with you. The reason I mention it to you, however, is this, that whilst we have a division in our English Bibles, no such division existed when John's gospel was originally written in the Greek language. We don't need to get into the reasons for that, except to point out that when Jesus spoke about being the shepherd and the gate of the sheep and the thief coming to kill and to destroy, etc., etc., this was an application of the event that had just taken place recorded in John chapter 9. We don't have time to get into that right now. I can give you a brief summary of it. One day, Jesus met a man who was blind. He healed him. It happened, however, to be the Sabbath day. There were some religious people who were concerned that they should not violate the Sabbath, and in order that they might not violate it, they had established innumerable rules for Sabbath day behavior. So locked in were they in their rules that they could not see the sheer beauty and wonder and glory that Christ exhibited when he opened the man's blind eyes. The attitude that these people portrayed in their rejection of what Christ had done and their rejection of what Christ claimed and their rejection of who Christ is leads him to point out that there are certain people who will come into your lives as agents of the evil one, and as agents of the evil one, guess what? They will deny Christ. They will reject his claims. They will refuse to accept his salvation. They will offer people all kinds of other way experiences to God. I am fully aware of the fact that the one remaining virtue that is generally acknowledged in our culture is the virtue of tolerance. It is tolerance that is taken to ludicrous ends, where we are required to tolerate things that are mutually exclusive, that are flatly contradictory. What seems to matter in many people's thinking is that we should just allow anybody to think what they wish and do what they wish because that is their prerogative. What we need to understand is that there's a certain exclusivity to Christianity which says, no, we do not accept that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. 
Christianity is dogmatic and says there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as error. There is such a thing as good and there is such a thing as evil. There is such a thing as right and there is such a thing as wrong. And Christianity affirms that Christ is the gate and whoever enters through him will be saved and that when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, that is the truth. There's the challenge. Christianity. And there are innumerable people who want another way. There are innumerable people who want to bypass the exclusive claims of Christ, who want to do an end run around the cross of Christ. There are innumerable people and innumerable systems and innumerable ideologies that would be substitutes for Christ as the Savior of the world. And every time we look at these alternatives. We recognize the confusion. We recognize the opposition to divine purposes. We recognize the rejection of Christ in his saving goodness and power and love and grace. And we say, an enemy has done that. And if people in the church of Jesus Christ can't recognize the insidious intrusion of the evil one into the thinking of many people so that they will now, in the name of tolerance, move away from the exclusive claims of Christ. They are subjecting themselves to dire danger. This is pretty heavy stuff. It's a challenge to think in terms of there being an enemy of our soul. The Lord Jesus also went on to say this, I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. Do you believe that? You stake everything on the saving grace of Christ? Do you want to be open to all kinds of options and all kinds of alternatives and the ensuing confusion in spiritual matters? The thief comes but to steal and to kill and destroy. When Jesus said that all that ever came before him were thieves and robbers, he wasn't being gratuitous. You know, thieves and robbers, that's saying the same thing twice. No, a thief was somebody who operates on the basis of craft and deceit, and a robber will use violence if necessary. Two entirely different words. He said that all who came before me were thieves and robbers. That doesn't mean that Moses and Elijah and David were thieves and robbers. No, he's saying that the shepherd comes at daybreak, but all who come before daybreak, that is under cover of darkness, are out to use devious methods to deceive people's spiritual lives. Is there any deception going on? Is there any covert activity? Is there any insidious intrusion into people's thinking? Of course there is. An enemy has done this. The upshot, of course, is that people are robbed of the gift of eternal life. Their experience of life is deadened, and their capacity for fullness of life in Christ is destroyed. 
You feed a kid junk food long enough, he will develop no appetite for wholesome nutrition. You feed a person spiritual garbage long enough, they'll have no appetite for the truth. And an enemy has done this. The enemy's vulnerability, here's the good news. One day the Lord Jesus met this enemy head to head in the wilderness. The enemy attacked him from every point where he perceived vulnerability on the part of the man Christ Jesus. And the man Christ Jesus resisted him firmly on the truth. The thing that the evil one cannot handle is the truth. The weapon of the believer is the truth as it is in Christ Jesus. The attacks will come devious, covertly, in the dark, undercover often, or overtly, like a roaring lion at the time. Sometimes there'll be flaming arrows. Sometimes they'll be obvious. Sometimes they'll be considerably less than obvious. That is why the believer at all times must be building their lives on what is true. As the evil one attacked him, the Lord Jesus responded every time, it is written, it is written, it is written. He knew the truth. He stood on the truth. And the devil left him. And he'll leave you too because he's always vulnerable to truth. The writer to the Hebrews tells us that the devil was destroyed when Christ died on the cross. Through death, the writer to the Hebrews says, through death, he destroyed him that has the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That verse, Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15, should be underlined so heavily that it comes through to the maps, assuming it's on the right, if not to the index. It is a profoundly significant statement. There is an enemy of our souls who under divine sovereignty utilizes death as his weapon, and because of this, people live in various forms of bondage because of fear of death, fear of the unknown, fear of mortality, fear of what they can't cope with. And Christ in his death played the devil at his own game, on his own field, with his own ball, in front of his own crowd, with his own referee, and beat him. Because he rose again from the dead, and the devil's teeth are pulled, and his fangs are drawn, and his claws are clipped. He'll still roar, and he'll still pounce, and he'll still do all that he can. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we are exhorted by both James and Peter in the small epistles at the end of your Bible that if we will resist the devil firmly in the faith, he will flee from us.
He's vulnerable to truth. He is defeated by the risen Christ. He cannot overcome the believer who stands firm in the faith and in the name of Christ says, Be gone. Be done. Get out of here. One of the things that puzzled us about the buffalo that the lion had killed that we found in Botswana was that most of the carcass was still intact. Normally when a lion kills, the pride of lions will join it and gorge themselves so full that they can't even move. And they'll eat and eat and eat till the whole buffalo is buffaloed. This buffalo that we found was mainly intact, except for the vultures that were all over it. While we were looking at it, wondering what the story was, we were suddenly surrounded by some armed men from the Botswana army. And uh, they minced no words. They told us to get out of there and get out of there quick. And when we asked why, they said because poachers had come over from Zambia after elephant and had run into the lion. And because they're heavily armed, they had frightened the lion away. The lion was too much for the buffalo, but couldn't handle the heavily armed men of Botswana. So it is with the evil one, the devil, who, like a roaring lion, goes about seeking whom he may devour. He's no match for the truth. He's no match for the risen Christ. He's no match for the believer who takes the whole armor of God, utilizing all divine resources, stands against him. And I want to tell you something. If you want to get a life, you better recognize the enemy. And if you want to get a life, you better understand yourself. And if you want to get a life, you need to know the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we often say forewarned is forearmed. Well, we've been forewarned. Now please make sure we're forearmed. We know that the God of this age blinds people's eyes. We know he even blinds people to their own blindness. We know that you provide spectacles, but sometimes blind people don't want to wear spectacles. We know that you will do cataract surgery on us, but some people don't want surgery. We wonder why we get dragged down. We wonder why we get confused. We wonder why we're deceived. We wonder why we don't enjoy life to the full. Help us to identify the enemy. Help us to understand his strategy. But above all else, help us to understand that in Christ, in the power of his resurrection, through his indwelling presence, and the application of the truth, we can resist him and he will flee. And he will not be free to kill and to rob and destroy. 
that you will be free to give us life to the full. Help us to understand these things. Help us to appreciate them. Help us to appropriate them. Help us to live in the good of them. For we pray these things in the name of Christ, the victor, the one who triumphed, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.